0: First John 3:19 through 24 starting in verse 19 and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him oh that's a promising word for if our heart condemns us God is greater than our heart and knows all things beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence toward God and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of God. Please be seated. So as you know, the theme that you may know that you have eternal life, the theme of 1 John that you may know, not doubt that you may know, and then he's given us some tests to help us to know. Remember, if you keep his commandments, you have love for the brethren. If you obey sound doctrine, sound teaching, these are some of the things that John comes up with. Last week, we talked about love marks a Christ follower. And we are to follow the master. We are to be like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He modeled love. He taught us to love. And he didn't only do that. He commanded us to love one another. Remember, John? 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. If this way all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In NIV it says you must love one another, insist that we love one another. He commands it. Now, why is love so important? Why is loving one another required within the body of Christ? And I, we went to Ephesians chapter 4, and we talked about, I believe that God wants us to walk in unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. Unity of the Spirit and a bond of peace, and they can only be done when we're loving one another. And that bond actually comes from a Greek word that talks about ligaments holding a joint in place. So I think the unity of peace, that love causes us to have unity, and it's like a ligament keeping us tightly bonded together in, to, to live in unity and, and in peace. How does Satan work against unity? How does he work against bonding us together against peace. And we talked about it last week, and Cain was our example. Cain and Abel, you remember the story in Genesis chapter 4. Abel brought an offering to God that was acceptable. It was of the flock. Cain brought his offering. It was of the field. Now, both of them brought an offering. I suspect that the offering was part of the issue. Cain brought an offering that was probably not what God asked to bring and because we know that a blood sacrifice is something that takes away sins and that sort of thing. But I thought it went deeper than that. And I think it really, really the bottom line was Cain's attitude was unacceptable to God. And what happened with when God confronted Cain, Cain was offended. Cain was jealous of his brother and God confronted him. And he said this, Cain, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you. And then he said, these words, that should resonate with each one of us, but you must master it. The onus is on you because I've spoken to you. I've told you the truth. Cain didn't have the spirit of God like we have today indwelling us. So we're really culpable. Okay. The spirit of God dwells within. So you must master it. Why? Because the spirit of God gives you the power to say no to your flesh and yes to the spirit. Satan works against unity, works against peace in our lives. Love in our lives by causing offense. Cain did what many people do when they are offended. Though think about this. He churned over it. Ever been offended by something? Ever get in a fight with your wife or with your husband? And it doesn't it's not so big at the beginning, but you start churning on it. You start smoldering, it starts getting built up bigger and bigger and bigger. It boiled over. And what did Cain do? He murdered his brother. Uh, He permanently destroyed the relationship. Folks, loving one another, loving one another, especially those that you do not like. There's people that we're kindred with, let's be honest. There's people that we enjoy being around, and there's people that we don't enjoy being around. But God calls us to love all the brethren. That's what marks a true Christ follower. We need to love those that bug us, those that irritate us, it's not natural to do that and i will submit to you it is supernatural and it can only come as we abide in christ as we make our home in christ that his love overwhelms us and gives us the ability to love the brethren to love the brethren walking in the spirit abiding in christ then we learn this another thing that love does christ followers will do the following they will surrender their lives and serve others. They will surrender their lives and serve others. A giving nature marks a Christ follower, to whom much is given, much is required in Luke 12, 48. And remember, we we went through the principles of stewardship last week, that Christians really don't own anything. Remember, we talked about Dave Ramsey getting out of debt and how great and wonderful that is. You still don't own it, even if you think you own it. it doesn't belong to you. It's temporary. We're taking care of something until we leave here. Stewardship. We're not acting like a steward, and we went through three things that demonstrate that we're not acting like a steward. We're not acting like a caretaker of God's stuff. When we are this, number one, controlling. When it's your way or the highway. When everything has to pass through you. All things have to go through. No one else can do it quite like you do. Okay? That's controlling. Second is when we are bragging. That can either be outright bragging, oh, how wonderful I am, or the subtle undercurrent of trying to get accolades from people that are around you. And then we really focused on this third one, and that's worry. Worrying, because I think that is something that just permeates the human condition. There's, we get things in our life, the right stimuli at the right time can cause anyone to go into the worry-anxious mode. And God does not want us to live there. Remember, worrying about anything, the root is loss. And remember, it's not mine. Whether it's your health, whether it's somebody in your family, whether it's a job, it's not mine. I'm a caretaker of everything that God has given me. Jesus said, don't worry, abide in me. In Matthew 6, 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his life? There's no benefit of worry. Not one cubit can be added to your your life. And then we went to the, the Hebrew for Christians website, and I found this thing about surrendering to peace surrendering to peace, how to really deal with worry. And we focused on Psalm 46.10, which says, be still and know that I am God. That is the starting point of dealing with any worry in your life. Be still and know that I am God. This is something that you must do. You must quiet your heart to know, to hear, to sense the divine presence of God. And then the way that you do this is that you set the Lord always before you. This is Psalm 16.8. The New Testament says it's abiding in Christ. Remember, Christ is always before you. I'm making my home in Christ. I'm menno, dwelling in Christ. So then I can, When I'm doing that, when I'm abiding in Christ, if I'm setting the Lord always before me, then and only then can I refuse the anxious thoughts that want to come into my being. Only then can I quiet my spirit. Only then can I hear the holy whisper of God that says, don't be afraid, I am with you i am with you through all the storms of life don't be afraid i am your strength trust in me worry is a place of exile and pain god's name means presence and love being anxious now hear this if you don't hear anything else hear this being anxious is to practice the absence of god being anxious is to practice the absence of god and being at peace is to practice the presence of God, practice the presence of God. And, and then we went in, how do we really, now we know this cognitively. We know what the word says not to worry. But how do we transfer it from our head knowledge to our heart, to our inner being, to our, to, to our core of who we are? How do we do that? So it's not just a matter of head education, it's heart education. Head education, again, seeks, to no- t- seeks knowledge primarily as a means of defining what we believe. But hard education centers on overcoming your fear by trusting God and experiences his healing. And then this is the way you do it. Please, there's, there's one and only one way to do it. And it is this. We must abide in Christ. If you want your worry to flee from you, to experience the divine presence, we must abide in him. That's something we can do. The spirit of God dwells in us. Our spirits have been made alive. When you're born again of the spirit, that that allows us to have community with the Holy God. God looks at us as pure and holy and righteous. Now we can have community with God. The spirit of God gives us the ability to do this. He's dwelling within us. And then we set the Lord always before you, Psalm sixteen eight. And then then be still and know that I am God. Be a good steward of your mind and surrender to the peace of God, and do not allow worry to control your life. There might be fleeting times when it comes in, but man, you just go right to Jesus. You go right to abiding in him. You, do, you practice the divine presence. You practice on speaking words of truth to yourself and not the lies. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Not on the junk that's coming in at you. Now, this week, we know we are of the truth, or we can know we are of the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study the precious, wonderful Word of God. And Lord, we believe this Word to be true from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. We believe the whole thing, and we believe that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and that you direct our steps through it. And may we hear from you today, Holy Spirit, what you want us to hear. In any talk, people hear different things that are just geared just for them. Speak to us today, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So we can know we are of the truth. We're going to say this over and over and over. We can know we are of the truth. John writes over and over, we know. We know in his his writings. We know. We know. We know. And that word is gnosko. Gnosko, it means to know experientially. I can experience God, and I can be sure, I can be be resolved to know that I know that I know. Now, the question is this. Now, we're all humans. The question is this. Does this mean we should never doubt? Never question, never wonder, never wonder if this is all true, this Christian thing. Have you ever doubted? Anybody in here never, ever doubt in their whole life? Because if you have, if that's you, I'll just come and rub your head and you put a little <laughs> on me, okay? Doubt is this. Doubt is to waver in opinion. It's to waver in an opinion. One man wrote this, and this is an honest guy. This is an honest Christian guy struggling. Wrote this. Is it wrong to have doubts about my faith? The Bible says you can't please God without faith. Hebrews 11.6 and that a person who doubts shouldn't expect to receive anything from him. That's James 1.7. This bothers me, he said, since I often struggle with doubt. He's honest. I'm a skeptic by temperament. All I can say to him is stop being a skeptic, but let me continue. It's hard for me to believe anything just because other people tell me. I'm supposed to. I want to be a Christian, but I can't turn off my brain. Does this mean there's no place for me in God's kingdom? This is an honest question. But this is somebody that's asking a question because they're not abiding in Christ. They're not dwelling in him. That's just a side note. But more on this as we go. Every Christian needs to wrestle with with doubt and disbelief. Uh, The poet Lord Tennyson wrote this, There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. Even the disciples of Jesus... Even the disciples of Jesus, after he appeared to them two times after the resurrection, and he said, meet me in Galilee, said these words in Matthew. Now, it's rather astounding. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Speaking about the disciples post-resurrection, he said this, Some doubted. Some doubted. Now, watch this. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. They listened. Jesus said, meet me there, and they did. And notice what happens. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Now, this is the first time we see in Scripture where the disciples worshiped Jesus. That's a first-time event. You can write that in your Bible if you have a Bible. So when they saw him, they worshiped. They, they, They prostrated themselves before him. They're on their face before the God of heaven. Jesus Christ. And then it says this, but some doubted. Isn't that amazing? This is after the resurrection. You know what they needed? They needed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. All the experience in the world, all the miracles that they saw Jesus do, everything that was wonderful and terrific being with Jesus, who was perfect and wonderful and loving and kind and gentle. But they still doubted until Pentecost. You think the Holy Spirit is not important? He is essential for our life. He is essential for our lives if we're going to walk this thing out. That gets us to verse 19. When you doubt, know this. We can know the truth by following the evidence. And I want to submit to you, when you get into that doubt groove, okay? And any this can happen to anybody. Right st- right stimuli at the wrong time in your life and you can start to f- Falter, always go back to the evidence. Verse 19. And by this we know, we know that we are of the truth, that we can know we're of the truth. Now, John is talking here about obeying his commands, loving the brethren, uh, adhering to sound doctrine. Those are the three main things that he goes over and over and over. So, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts, so we're not all trepidant, our hearts before him. We know that we know that we know. So, Christians are supposed to have faith. Would you agree with that? Yes. Amen. Yes. Now, there's many skeptics that claim that we have blind faith. Oh, you just have blind faith. You don't have anything to really believe in. Let me say this. Is faith really blind faith? No, it is not. You know what it says? The definition is in Hebrews 11.1. Being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. Imprinted on your mind. Hebrews 11, 1. Being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you can't see. And Hebrews 12, 2 says this Jesus is the author. He started your faith, and He is the finisher of your faith. You know what that means to me? He's going to get me through this. He's going to get me home. He started it. He will finish it. I love that picture. And it, let that just it be imprinted in your mind. We do not just have a a casual faith or a, a blind faith. We have faith in a Savior. We have faith in something. It's not faith in faith. There's a lot of things in Christendom that are faith in faith. Oh no. The object of our faith is God, the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be sure and certain of that. Okay? So, with that stated, Christianity isn't about having faith in faith alone, it's again, it's in a person. The word faith, pistis, is a derivative of persuasion. In other words, it's not merely blind, mindless faith, but it's accepting, not we're just accepting things that our moms and dads taught us. Or you got to believe this. Oh no, it has to be personal. It has to be personal. Instead, faith is a solid confidence based on convincing evidence. We have convincing evidence that what we believe is true. When you compare Christianity with all world religions, Nothing comes even close to matching Christianity in the in in the validity that of its truth. Nothing comes close. Follow the evidence, folks. The evidence is the following. Jesus really lived. There's people that even question that. There's even question that he really lived. Non-Christian historians validate this. Jesus really did miracles. You know again non-Christian authorities validate this and that no one was saying he didn't do what he said he did. There's no one running around saying oh he's lying he didn't he didn't he didn't raise Lazarus. Oh no, he's not lying, he didn't heal the blind. Every single miracle there's no skeptics involved in it. None. Jesus really fulfilled prophecy and this is the crux of the whole thing. Jesus really was crucified and a myriad and I'm going to give you just a few. A myriad of Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled at his death. Always, always, always examine the evidence when you start to doubt. And it will put you right back on track. Watch this. Jesus had no control of how he was going to die. He died on a cross. Why? Because that's what Father said he would do for the sins of the world. He wasn't going to hit with an axe. He wasn't going to be stoned. He wasn't going to fall down and hit his head. He was going to die on the cross for our sins because it was ordained by God the Father that this would happen. The Godhead actually did. So that was something that he had no control of. And how about this one? He had no control of the soldiers gambling for his clothes. That was prophesied. They're going to gamble for the clothes. And they did. Had they not, he wouldn't have been the Messiah. How about this one? A A Roman soldier piercing his side. Jesus had no control of that. He wasn't saying, oh, come and pierce me to fulfill this. You know, he, no, he, it was something that was God orchestrated. How about broken bones? The thief on the right and the thief on the left had their bones broken in their legs, so they could accelerate death. They could no longer heave and breathe on the cross. They got to Jesus. They got better to smack his tibias, and he, he was already dead. Why was that? Because it was prophesied that no bone would be broken in the Messiah. He had no control of that, at least while he's on the cross. I mean, in eternity past, he, he, he knew this all was going to happen. He had no broken bolt. He sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, and he was. He's betrayed by a friend, Judas, and he was, by a friend, and it was Judas. It happened just like it was predicted in the Old Testament. There is darkness over the face of the earth for three hours. Look, a Christianity is not blind faith. It is evidential faith. It is evidential faith. So when doubt creeps in, simply go back to the evidence. Follow the evidence. You are in the right venue when you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Never think that Islam might be true or Hinduism might be true or there might be something good in Buddha or one of the. No, Christianity is the one true religion. So fulfill prophecy. No other world religion has one. Now one! But there's hundreds, hundreds of fulfilled prophecy in in our scriptures. Archaeological discoveries validate the biblical narrative. Internal consistency. We have in our hands here 66 books, 40 authors, written over 1,500 years and three continents and three languages with an integrated message from beginning to end, That Messiah is coming and it all flows together. You look at the Koran written by one guy over a short period of time that is inconsistent in its application. That's man. This is God. Internal consistency. And then we have external historical evidence. Josephus, Tacitus verified many of the things that happened to Jesus. Listen, we do not believe in blind faith but evidential faith, Amen, Amen. I'm so passionate about this because it really bothers me when someone says that our, our our faith is not genuine or it's it's blind. It's no, it's it's tons of evidence. So, verse 20, we can know the truth, yet, yet, and this can happen to any anybody. Doubt can creep in. Doubt can creep in. Verse 20. For if our heart condemns us. And and I'm suggesting that word has in in it, doubt. God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, this is an interesting little place to develop. If our heart condemns us, doubt creeps in. The word condemn is this. It is kata ginosko. Kata ginosko. And it means kata is against. So it's against knowledge. To be worthy of blame, reprehensible. Now, how does Satan want you to look at yourself? Blamed, reprehensible, doubting the truth. That's how he wants this thing to go down. Okay? Now, I want to suggest to you, when that happens to you, you go back to a basic principle of the choo-choo train. Now, that thing's going to come up here, okay? Number one, always remember, when you're starting to feel condemnation, when you're starting to feel doubt, you go back to the evidence. And this is what what drives the train, is the mind. The mind. Where is my mind going to be? Facts. I'm going to believe what God says no matter what. What What is our saying here? I will trust in the Lord until I die. Not I'm going to trust in the Lord until things get better. I'm going to trust in the Lord until things go bad. No, I trust in the Lord no matter what until I die. That's my job. Now, the facts are the facts. It's the word of God. I'm going to believe it by faith. I'm going to trust him. I believe what God says by faith. And folks, I can't say this strongly enough. Our feelings are the caboose. Our feelings are the caboose. That's your heart. You don't trust your feelings. How do I know this? Because there's lots of times I don't feel like being a pastor. Shock you? Huh? Well, there's lots of times I might not feel like being a husband. There might not, I might not feel like going to work. I might not feel like doing whatever I do. I might not feel like exercising. But I know that I have to, I, I have to do those things to stay healthy. I don't act on my feelings. If I acted on my feelings, where would I be? I would be dead. Because someone would have killed me, okay? I would be in prison because I would have shot some trucker on the, on the road, okay? You know my, my weaknesses. I'm open with you about it. I can't act on my feelings. I can't even drive like I want to drive. Because I'm representing Christ. Somebody cuts in front of me immediately. I have to go back. Back faith feelings, back faith feelings. <laughs> and you do too. You just have your own little pressure area, it might be a little different than mine. Okay? So, notice verse 20, if our heart condemns us. Remember, don't trust your heart. Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above, how many things? All things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? But what does the world tell you? What does the world tell our young people today? Trust your heart. Oh, you must go with those feelings. You must trust your heart. Follow your heart. Oh, I like this one. Be true to your heart. Oh, be true to your heart. just, Just go explore anything that you want, any little tingle that you have inside of you. Folks, that is the wrong way to go. That is the wrong way to go. Do not trust the words of condemnation that come to your mind that creates doubt and fear. Now, just some examples. Doubts about God, because God hasn't acted the way you thought he should have acted in a, in a certain situation. If you were really God, you would have done this for my brother, or you would have done this to my dad, or you would have done this to my friend, or you would have raised that person. If you were really, God, and we start thinking crazy, like we're God, and we just want him to do what we want us, what we want to have done. He's in charge. When you start doubting who I am in Christ. When you start doubting my purpose, when you start doubting why I was born, why was I even created, you have value, you have meaning, you are created in the imago Dei, the image of God, God loves you implicitly, you have worth, never accept the condemnation that comes at you from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Never accept it. Romans 8.1 says this, Paul, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? Zero. None. 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 So, why do we experience doubt? Why do we experience condemnation? What's this all about? I want to just take a little journey here with you. Our culture, our brains, and doubt. So, all of us are immersed in an informational, techno slave culture. Would you agree? We're all addicted. Anyone who has a smartphone, you are addicted. I am addicted. First sign of boredom. The first little tittle of boredom. I'm checking the news, checking the stock market, checking Google, checking something, going here, going there, occupying my mind constantly with these inputs. Think about that. And it's not just me. I think it's a, a universal type thing. So, just with that thought. Your brain, your mind, our minds are being bombarded with more information than we can handle. More information that we can handle. The Gospel Coalition wrote an article, and it goes like this. I don't know who wrote it, but whoever did it. Many have rightly warned that evangelicals are losing a Christian mind. By neglecting the Bible and indiscriminately consuming secular materials informed by non-Christian ideas. And then this writer says this: But what if it's not just the content we consume, but also the medium in which we consume it? What if that's a problem? Mary Ann Wolfe wrote an article, Reading the Reading Brain in a Digital World that makes a compelling case that our use of digital devices is changing the way we read, which in turn profoundly alters the way we think. A chilling prospect for Christians who believe that through the written word, God renews our minds, enabling us to think critically and analyze information from a biblical standpoint. We're losing that. She warns that digital devices pose a threat to the development of mental circuitry. Now, she is not against technology. She is not against technology. Let's not throw all this stuff out. But she makes this point. Not because digital reading is fundamentally different from print reading, but because digital medium deluges us with information in bite-sized chunks, promoting informational overload and distraction. What am I doing when I get my cell phone out? Okay, I'm getting bite-sized information. Little bits of information, constantly barbaring my mind. And it's not healthy for us. So, what do we need? Well, we need digital discipline. Digital discipline is the key. Digital discipline is the key. Our brains are constantly assaulted with information. Now look at tweets. Tweets, little bite-sized, constantly. Then we have text. And then we have big tweets, which is Facebook. Look at changing the way we think and process information. That is what's happening here. Now, a worldview contrary to Scripture is affecting our minds, is affecting our minds. We are living in a culture where a Christian worldview is being more and more criticized and more and more dangerous in many parts of the world coming to our shores soon, okay? Can you see why? and how doubt may creep in. We're constantly bombarded with negative inputs. Constantly. It's hitting us constantly, especially when something has happened to the Western church. The Western church has given up on the totality of the Word of God and gone to bite-sized little pieces of the Word of God, flashing it up as the world does on the screen for you to take a little bite-sized taste of it, but not getting the whole thing in context to know what God is talking about. So this has is, this is played right into the church becoming more and more dumbed down, and more and more blending with the world, and accepting the world's ways. The church has done this in favor of looking like the world in order to appeal to the world. The church has never been to look like the world. It's to be a contrast to the world, not look like the world. It's a contrast to the world. It's a sanctuary where believers can come in and worship God, where people that are not believers can come in and find out about who the true God is. Now, God's doubt cure, is eraser, our brain overload cure, it's simple. It's not complex. It is a, it's a, we've mentioned it like 12,000 times in First in John. Abide in me, make your home in me, spend time with Jesus. This is not an option. This is a daily necessity. For anyone to live in this techno-slave culture, it is a daily necessity to spend time with God. And not only that, but to keep him centered in your thinking. Centered in your thinking think about this. How do we do this? Well, you must abide in God's word, be at home in his word. Then we are to spend time in prayer. And that prayer, I would suggest to you is pray without ceasing. That's the first Thessalonians 5, 16. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will in Christ Jesus concerning you. Pray without ceasing. You know what that means? That doesn't mean we're just officially going, oh Lord, but we have him in the center of where we are all day long. When I used to work, when I used to work, I'd be in the I'd be in the OR, and we gets a little intense there sometimes. And you, you're putting a patient to sleep or something like that. And I always would pray before I did my cases, and Lord, oh please protect the patient and please help me not get sued. And that, that a, <laughs> <laughs> that's you know, that's what I was praying. But there would be times when there would be long gaps where I would have forgotten God. I would have had him kind of off on the side and all the conversations in the OR and all that stuff that goes on around you. And I go, Lord, I have I missed you for these last five or six hours. And I reconnect with him. That's what I think praying all without ceasing is. That I'm keeping him in the forefront of my mind all day long. Not just segmenting him out when I come to church or when I have my morning quiet time. Or No, he's before me all my day. I'm walking with him. I'm enjoying him all the day long. And then finally, practicing the presence of God is a must. If you want to be overcome these inputs, we must practice the presence of God. This is what prayer meditating does. Psalm 46.10 again, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 119, verse 15 and 16, I will meditate on your precepts. Eastern meditation has stolen meditation. I will meditate on, you know, Eastern meditation is empty your mind, allow the demonic forces to come in and fill your mind and act like they're good. That's what Eastern meditation is. Oh, meditating on God's word is something different. I'm meditating on the actual words of God and I'm going over them in my mind and they become part of who I am. I will meditate on your precepts. I will contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes and what you have taught me. And then this, I will not forget your word. It'll be before me wherever I go. It's before me on the highway when the trucker that I get mad at. And then I can't respond because the word of God constrains me. I cannot act that way. There's sometimes when family members bother you. Your husband ever bother you? You're constrained by the Word of God. Your wife ever bother you? You're constrained by the Word of God. You can't act like you, like you want to act. We have to be different. And finally, our, our last doubt cure is this. Spend time with God's people. This is not optional either. So many, so many, so many in the church have elected to go to the Church of Television with Charles Stanley. Now, he's a good teacher, okay? Or Chuck Swindoll or whoever else that you might like. That is not the church. That can be a supplement. The church is body, life together. You bring a spiritual gift that is unique to you, to the body of Christ, that that we need. And you need the spiritual gift that everybody else has. It's to build the body up. When we're isolated from the body, what happens to an ember when it's away from the fire? These all stay red and hot when they're all together. You take the ember away, and eventually that cools. And that's what happens to most people as they get away to their television church. Charles Stanley speaking could be a key moment. I'm having my toast right now. Could be another key moment. I need another cup of coffee. Could be another key moment. Oh, the birds are out on the bird bath. They're taking a bath. Look, honey. Look, honey. They're on the bird bath. We're all distracted. Look, there's a place for that. You can't get out or something like that. That's one thing. But to make that your church is not what the church is about. I just hope you realize that. Doubt can creep in at any time. God's eraser will keep doubt away. Folks, we need one another, particularly as we see the day approaching, as it says in Hebrews. And finally, verse 21 through 24, we can know the truth and are not condemned. Again, he's... This is a kind of a repeat but it's not quite. So verse 21, beloved. Now he's talking to believers, beloved. If our heart does not condemn us, that's a third class if. Remains to be seen if not if and it is so first class but third class remains to be seen. If our heart does not condemn us, we have then we we have confidence toward God. If my heart is in the right place, I can have confidence when I ask God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because, oh, watch this. I'm dwelling with him. We keep his commandments, do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment, the number, number, number one commandment that God has for humanity, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. The number one commandment. And if he gives you a commandment, do you think he gives humanity the ability to do it? Yes, he does. He offers the gift to humanity. And love one another as he has comman- as gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And this we know that he abides in us oh by the spirit whom he has given us. The spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God says in Romans chapter 8. So again, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why are believers not condemned? This is going to Christianity 101, just to review. Most of you know this. So God placed, now hear this, God placed all of our condemnation on his son, the Lord Jesus on the cross. Every last drop of it. All of our reprehensible sins. All of our blame and shame was placed on Jesus. All of our crud was placed on Jesus. All of our filthy sins. And you know what God did? God poured all of his wrath on his own son that I deserved. He substituted for me all of the wrath. Isaiah 53.10 says, it, It pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. Why? Because he loved us. He loved us. It was a love gift for us. You think that God so loved the world, that is a, people, that just rolls off of our tongues. Folks, that is the most dynamic statement that we could ever hear. God loves us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we love God, oh no, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a, big word, propitiation for our sins. All that means an acceptable sacrifice, appeasing the wrath of God. That's what propitiation is. Jesus Christ was the only acceptable sacrifice that could appease the wrath of God. Couldn't have been an angel. Couldn't have been another great human being. You could only be the sinless son of God. That's what it means. And all humans are rendered savable by Jesus' death on the cross. Now we don't believe in universalism. They are savable, but the human must do one thing believe believe okay it's a free gift believe believe this is true receive the gift <laughs> it's no works involved with that that is believe and receive the gift of life that he offers us let me continue with this a promise to non-doubters now, there's a promise here if our heart does not condemn us in verse 21 a promise to non-doubters because we are not condemned we can with confidence ask and receive from him what a privilege that we can go to the creator of the world and ask and receive from him why do we receive from him well we obey his commands we do what pleases him we're abiding in him the things that are pleasing to god we reviewed this love the brethren uh, hold fast to sound doctrine obey his, be obedient to him if you want to hear from god you abide in christ put up your petition and believe that he's going to act on your behalf. If we, be, if we abide in him, now hear this, this is important. If we abide in him, we'll receive from our Father because I believe we'll be asking in line with his will. Remember what James says? You have not because you ask not, or you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own pleasures. But, oh, if I'm abiding in Christ, where, how am I going to ask? I'm going to ask in line with his will. What did Jesus say? Thy will be done in Gethsemane. Not my will, thy will be done. John 15, 7 says this. If I can get there. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you. That's a a requirement. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. If you are abiding, then you will be receiving because you're going to ask in line with with God's will. Uh, 1 John 5.14 says this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, not my will, never does it say, my will be done, Rick. You You ever see that in Scripture? Put your name in there. You don't see that. You see, thy will be done. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Very important concept. Very important concept. Those who abide in him will not ask to get what they want, but what God desires for them. Folks, this is the Jesus way. This is thy will be done, Father. This is the abiding in Christ way. Now, just a quick review. Because we are not condemned, we receive from God. We're in his family. We're obeying. We're living like a family member. And then he gives us, in verse 23, an incredible command to humanity to believe on the name of his only son, Jesus Christ, to be saved. And then once we're saved, to love the brethren, to love one another. In verse 24, how do we know we are not condemned? How do we know we're really saved? And I think this is the key. You've learned to take orders from your commander. You've learned to obey. You've learned this. You learn that this is best for you to obey your commanding officer. Believing in the Son, loving the brethren, Holy Spirit empowered. In Romans eight, chapter fourteen, Paul elaborates a little bit on the Spirit of God. He says this: "For as many as are led by the Spirit of God." Now, that's what we want through our life, through our day. We want to be led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. That "sons" is the word "huios." That is that is a son taking on the characteristics of his father. If I'm led by the Spirit. I'm looking more and more like Jesus. I'm looking more and more like Father. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Oh, no. But you, resp- you receive the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So important. And if children, then heirs. Oh, listen to this. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if we indeed suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him together, be glorified together. Now, John MacArthur says this about joint heirs. I like this. He says, every adopted child will receive by divine grace the full inheritance Christ receives by divine right. Joint heirs with Christ. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what is awaiting you? We can't even imagine it. We can't even imagine. I don't even know how the electricity comes out. How can I know it's going to come in eternity? We can know that we are, that we are of the truth. We can be resolved and we can be sure. Conclusion. Just a, just a little summary. We can know we are of the truth. We can know. We can know. We, we don't have blind faith. We have evidential faith. It, that's one of the key things you want to remember from this. Christianity is not blind faith. It is evidential faith. We can know, yet doubt. We're humans. It can creep in. Just depends on the conditions of your life. It can happen. But go back to your fact, faith, and feeling choo-choo train. Put that indelibly imprinted in your mind. Fact, faith, feelings. Don't trust your feelings. And remember your doubt eraser is simply abiding in Christ, abiding in his word, taking time in prayer, practicing the presence of God meditating on his precepts, and then spend time with God's people. And thirdly, we can know we are not condemned because we are obeying our commanding officer, our commander. We're obeying our commander. He's in charge. We're not in charge. He's in charge. We're in Christ. We can receive from God the things that we ask for in prayer because we're asking according to his will. We're asking in line with his will. We're obeying our commander. We're taking orders. Mark Dehan tells a story. I want to close with this. He says this. A sergeant in the Indiana National Guard was demoted and sentenced sentenced to four days in jail because he refused to take his cap off. Sounds a little trivial, doesn't it? It wasn't he goes on to say it really wasn't that simple. The incident occurred during the winter training exercises when temperatures were well below freezing. The man wore a soft cap with ear flaps under a regulation helmet. The previous spring, he had suffered burns to his face and ears, and doctors had advised him to wear a cap to protect his sensitive skin. At this point, you're probably feeling sorry for the guardsman. Yes, I would be. But there's more to the story, and there usually is. In the official report, there was evidence that the man was intoxicated, And this incident of insubordination had been preceded by two other warnings about proper headgear. The soldier was not excused, though he thought he should have been. Like so many of us, he made the mistake of thinking he was within his rights to dismiss the orders of someone in authority. In the family of God, we too are apt to think we know what is best for us. There's no one in a better position to understand our needs than the Lord. His commands are given with an understanding of the outcome. He knows the outcome. We don't. They are for his honor, the good of others, and our eventual joy. Obey your commanding officers. Every single command of God does two things. Provides for and protects his people provides for and protects his people. When we go beyond the commands of God is when we suffer. He knows what is best for us. When we abide in Christ, when we take orders from our commander, we can know that we are of the truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. And, Lord, it really is so refreshing to be able to delve into your word, to hear the Spirit of God speak to our spirits, resonating truth. Lord, each one of us has heard something here today. Holy Spirit, please do your work in each one of us. Where there is encouragement needed, all give encouragement. Lord, where there is an admonition, please do that. Where there's joy that needs to be given, oh, Lord, fill us with your joy. But more than anything, Lord, we want to experience your presence. Fill us this place to overflowing with your spirit. Help us to sense the spirit of God. You have spoken to us words of truth today, Father. And may we live out what you have taught us, not just to be hearers, but doers of the word. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.